Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast. I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. And I'm Julie Kingsley, and we are hoping to build the happiest community of writers well in the entire world. (laughs) Pretty ambitious. (laughs) Uh, The Manuscript Academy hosts a number of events and opportunities beyond this podcast, including live events, written and live critiques from top minds in the industry, and a complete online writing conference. And I'm so excited for today. Yes, we have Tom Lutz. His website describes him as an author, a professor, an editor, and a gadabout which I had to look up, which means a habitual pleasure seeker. And now this is officially my new favorite word. I love it so much. (laughs) Welcome to Let's Landia. By day, Tom Letts teaches creative writing at the University of California in Riverside and manages the LA Review of Books, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting writing about literature, culture, and the arts. By night, he's a rocker in rock bands. (laughs) In between, he's on a quest to visit every country in the world, 135 down, only 60 to go. This vagabond has dovetailed his wanderlust and passion for writing into seven nonfiction books, some on travel, one on the history of slackers, another on the history of tears. His first crime novel, Born Slippy, was published January 14. Besides Born Slippy, he's the author of two books of travel narrative, And the Monkey Learned Nothing and Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World, The Cultural Histories, Doing Nothing, and Crying, two separate stories, (laughs) Literary Histories, Cosmopolitan Vistas, and American Nervousness, 1903, Pieces for New York Times, LA Times, Exquisite Corpse, New Republic, Salon, Black Clock, Iowa Review, and other places. He's a distinguished professor of creative writing at UC Riverside, the founding editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, founder of the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour, the Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly Journal, the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop, and Los Angeles Review of Books. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. That that's a lot of Los Angeles reviews of books right there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were excited to speak with you for a number of reasons, not just because you're a creative writing professor who probably has a lot of good writing wisdom for our listeners, but also because you seem to approach living with such joy. I think a lot of writers think it's important to focus on the talent of the room and sitting in chairs staring at laptops, but you prove there's a lot of living to be done outside of that. Yeah, well, the the laptop, of course, has really changed the life of the writer. You can take it anywhere. You can. I wrote part of the book that I finished uh, a couple months ago while I was in a jeep getting driven around Mongolia. Um, I just wow. was sitting in the back typing up some notes. So I I typed, you know, actually writing a story about Ecuador <laughs> while I was there, and a little bit about Mongolia. So it's uh, the writing life can kind of coexist uh, very, very neatly now with travel, with anything else you want to do. So um, I, I think that basically the laptop is the most fundamental change in the life of the writer in our time. What were you doing in Mongolia? It's just the latest place I was going, but I was, I was writing a book about aimlessness I, it's a long story, but I was writing a book about aimlessness for a little philosophy series at Columbia University Press, and it they and 
one of the topics that comes up when you think about aimlessness in philosophy is this idea of nomadic thinking that some French philosophers came up with. And I, so I was think, talk, talking to actual nomads about nomadic thinking while I was writing about the French philosophers talking about nomadic thinking. So that, wow. was the, that was the ostensible reason for being there. But really, I just have always wanted to go to Mongolia. I've always wanted to see the Gobi Desert. I've always wanted to see the, the two hump camels, the Bactrian camels. <laughs> what did they think of your project? Uh, in Mongolia, they had no idea what I was talking about, <laughs> by and large. I was, but they did know, of course, their own life, and they knew what it meant to be a nomad in Mongolia now, which is not the romantic image. They basically are people that have two houses, a winter house and a summer house. And they it's on the same plot of land a few miles away from each other, but one is high and in the sun and one is low and in the shade. But they they uh, and they herd animals around their fairly large kind of ranches because they have their own land. Their other people are not allowed to graze on their land, and they mark it with tires. So it's not exactly nomads the way we have a, an image of them wandering wherever they want and always in, in new new ground. They're really farmers, herders that that live on a on a big patch of land and move their yurt from one place to another on that land. So cool. So Tom, tell us, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of blown away, you know, myself, people tell me I do too many different things. <laughs> they tell the us, even All you tell time. me that. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell Jessica that. So you almost do more things than we do when we each have multiple jobs and projects and, mm-hmm. you know, run the Manuscript Academy and have the podcast or writing and Jessica's an agent. So tell us like how you transition from from critic to teacher to, to eventually fiction writer? Well, that's, uh, I'm not sure there was much of a transition. That is, I, I always was a novelist in my own mind. I really thought of myself as a novelist. I was just procrastinating for <laughs> forever. And, uh, and I do think that productive procrastination is the secret to the well-lived life. And that, uh, <laughs> All, all I was doing by starting Los Angeles Review of Books was procrastinating on the novel. And all I was doing writing those other books was procrastinating on the novel, the travel and travel books. I, always the goal was to be a novelist. I was just, a, I just didn't quite have the confidence I needed. I was nervous about it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why I avoided it for so long, but I well, always was, I, I was think, always headed here. I know. <laughs> Because yeah. that's my second my secondary question here is mm-hmm. when you're a teacher and you're a critic, the critic in your head can slow down the page, right? Did you find that happening? Yes. Uh, partly when I would get started on a novel, which I've did many times over the years, Toni Morrison would be sitting on one of my shoulders and oh, Hen- no. Hen- Henry James <laughs> on the other, and they would kind of cackle. <laughs> at my puny attempts in their genre. And it was, I think it was partly doing Los Angeles Review of Books for which I read a lot of books that I wouldn't have read otherwise. As a, as a literary critic and as a literary historian, I was reading a lot of great books. For LARB, I was reading a lot of books somewhat at random, that is on recommendations of, of agents and, and publicists and friends and and so I, I had a, w- a wider range. And at one point I thought, oh, you know what? I see what this novelist is doing right here. I could, I could do something like that. So it, it, that relaxed me a bit. And I went ahead and did it. 
Can you tell us, I mean, you said that it was an act of procrastination, but I'm very curious about how you started the Los Angeles Review of Books. Can you tell us about what led to that? Yeah, that was also a little bit accidental. I was offered the the uh, editorship of a literary journal, a quarterly journal that I had published in recently, and the editor wanted to retire. And I wasn't really in the market for it for an editor's position. I, I had a job at UC Riverside as a creative writing instructor, and but I thought it would be great for our department and for our students if we had a journal located at the university. And there were 12 of us on the faculty. So I thought, well, if we each did one issue every three years, it wouldn't mm. be too hard for any of us. We could it wouldn't wouldn't be that onerous for anyone. We could just we could do it as a bit of a collective, and um, and I brought that to my faculty and said, well, you know, what do you think? Should we do this? And uh, Chris Abani, who's a novelist who was uh, with us at the time, said that makes it sound like he's dead, doesn't it? With us at the time, I mean, he was he was working at Riverside. He's perfectly hell and healthy and <laughs> teaching now at uh, at Northwestern. But Chris Abani said, I don't know why you would buy a used journal when you can get a new one for free. And he meant that on the internet, you can just, and Chris Abadi said, I don't know why you would buy a used journal when you can get a new one for free. Meaning that you can start a journal on the internet for nothing. You just build a website and you have your journal and you cut, you do it with no baggage. You do it the way you want to do it. And that made me stop and think, well, you know what? If I was going to start something, what would it be? What is you know? What does the world need now besides love, sweet love? And I thought, it, well, what the world needs really is not probably another literary journal. But it was right when this is almost ten years ago now. It was right when the Boston Globe closed its book review, the Chicago Tribune closed its book review, the Denver paper, the Philadelphia paper, the Washington paper, the Los Angeles Times shut down their Sunday book review, and the Sunday book review was where I was introduced to literary culture. It's, it was how I knew that there was such a thing as as literary criticism, as, as reviewing and pe- people talking about books. And um, it's where I kind of fell in love with the idea of a literary community. And I thought that people moving forward should have that, even though newspapers could no longer support them. So I thought, you know, what we need to do is figure out what the next book review is for our culture. And, that, and that's, that's what we should do. We'll call it the Los Angeles Review of Books. And I went to my faculty and said, what do you think? What, how about if we do the Los Angeles Review of Books instead? And everybody said, that's a great idea. We, we should do that. And what they meant was, that's a great idea. You should do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I mean, a, a lot of people pitched in. A lot of, the, a lot of people saw the value of it right away and volunteered their time as well. I've always been a volunteer on it. We eventually built it and built it and kind of raised more money and hired professional staff. And uh, it's now each of those parts that you named earlier on are all attempts to kind of build out both the kind of impact and, and the platforms that we're on, but also build out revenue streams. So each one brings in a little bit more revenue, helps us sustain the the whole operation. and. Uh, it's uh, so far it's working. <laughs> we're going to hit our 10th anniversary uh, in 2011. Congratulations. And we're, we're so glad you do what you do. I mean, for, for book people, you know, having that, that insight and things we can go to really makes the difference in our purchasing habits. So as always, it's appreciated. Well, so let's thanks talk so much. About, 
your novel, a little bit more Born Slippy, such a great mm-hmm. title. I'm going to read to our audience just the blurb from Amazon to kind of get a feel for it. It is a provocative, globe-trotting, time-shifting novel about the seductions and resistance to toxic masculinity. And we start with, Frank knew as well as anyone how stories start and how they end. This fiery mess and something like that was bound to happen. He had been expecting it for years. Frank Baltimore is a bit of a loser, struggling by as a carpenter and handyman in rural New England when he gets his big break building a mansion in the executive suburbs of Hartford. One of his workers is a charismatic 18-year-old kid from Liverpool, Dimitri, in the U.S. in the summer before university. Dimitri is a charming sociopath, develops a fascination with his autodidactics philosopher boss, perhaps thinking that if he could figure out what made Frank tick, he could be less of a pig. Dimitri heads to Asia and makes a neo-imperialistic fortune with a trail of corpses in his wake. And when Dimitri's office building in Taipei, Taipei, sorry, explodes in an enormous fireball, Frank heads to Asia, falls in love with Dimitri's wife, and things go from bad to worse. Worse, combining the best elements of literary thriller, noir, and political satire, Born Slippy is a darkly comic an honest meditation on modern life under global capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) I know. It's so funny. There was so much like I was, and I read it before, but I was like processing as I I read it. And I was like, wow, this is just amazing. So much fun. I think it is fun. And it was certainly fun to write. Wow. I just, I don't know why I waited so long to get into the novel game because I've never had so much fun writing. These characters just kind of, came alive and did what novelists always say characters do. They kind of take on a life of their own and I would be typing and somebody would say something that just cracked me up like uh, as if I hadn't written it at all. And so just pure pleasure. From my perspective as someone who has never written a full novel, I admire it because the times that I have thought about doing that, you know, I've written many shorter pieces, but the idea of writing a novel really is intimidating. It's like you have to cross this entire ocean of work. And so even though I look at novels that people send me every single day, it's still something that I find intimidating. So was that kind of the feeling that you had or you just... What was holding you back? Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, the funny thing is that, you know, that line, I can't remember who originally said this, but it was, um, I'm sorry, I didn't have enough time to make it shorter. That it it really, I find uh, the long form relaxing. And because I don't, you, you can take your time to figure out where you're going and what you're up to. You can take your time to, to let things develop. You know, I often don't know what my book is about until I'm, I've got a a full draft, so it it takes me a long time to understand so anything. Cancer. And, yes, I'm you, very you are I'm, a yeah. Yes, exactly. I'm very bad at doing journalism. The few op eds I've done have been things that I wrote and was late, too late to get published. But then the event came around again, so I had a, a full draft, and I just changed some details and published it again. So. John Boehner, uh, you know, I wrote a book about crying, and John Boehner was famous for crying when he was the uh, the head of the sure. House of Representatives, and I wrote an editorial about it once. It took me way too long, so news had passed, but of course he cried again, didn't he? So I, at that that time, I was ready for him, and I published it. But I'm bad at the short, fast pieces. 
I'm better at the long one. So for me, it's not daunting. It's uh, it's relaxing to have the the full book stretching out. I also knew because I'd written other books that books, you know, you think when you're when you're facing your first book, you think that it's just this vast, vast territory. You don't know how you're ever going to fill the whole thing. But it turns out that you know, book is a pretty finite space, and that it doesn't fit ever quite as much as you think it might. My very first book, I had a I had an outline with thirteen chapters, and the book was chapter one. By the time I finished <laughs> chapter one, oh, I, I'd, I'd used up my three hundred pages. <laughs> so, yeah, so no. It the, sounds like but, your process is a little bit kind of all over the place. You know, you're traveling, writing, and then you're doing it at home, and you are touching a whole bunch of different things, but you're just, it's, it's kind of like your pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. It's where I play hooky from the stuff I'm late doing. You know, <laughs> what's, so. the strange, what's the strangest place you've ever written? The strangest place I've ever, well, it was a truck stop in Southern India. It was a, a uh, 50 cent room in a truck stop and I didn't really have sheets on the bed. There were some cloth on there, but it was not, didn't look safe. I basically put a t-shirt over my head, wore all my clothes to lay down on it. And uh, since the whole thing was making me a little nervous, I pulled out my laptop and and got some writing done. (laughs) That's a great story. That's a great reaction (laughs) to that situation. (laughs) Also, I've got the quote that I think you were mentioning earlier. It's Blaise Pascal who famously wrote, I would have written a shorter letter, but I did not have the time. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) (laughs) We heard that you have some thoughts about how the 2020 election could threaten universities and the humanities. Could you tell us more about that? Well, the kind of defunding of, of public education has been going on for many, many years. The, at every level, preschool, through uh, high school, through college, through graduate school, defunding is is uh, is a serious problem. And you know we're doing this at a time when China is building dozens of of new universities every month. I mean it's a, it's remarkable the the amount of money they're putting into higher education because they know what what it's good for. It's good for everything in the culture. So we we have been taking the other route, a kind of anti-tax, the party of anti-tax has been uh, cutting back as much as they can. And 2020, um, if Trump is reelected, a lot of that will continue apace. Betsy DeVos, as the head of the education department, is very interested in privatizing education, getting rid of public education as much as possible, defunding as much of it as possible. It's a group, the president and, and his cabinet, that are that believe in a tiered society in which some people have all the opportunity world and some people have none. So that makes for a very bad situation for, for public funding. All universities rely on federal grants to get by, have done so since the land-grant colleges in the, in the 19th century, all of the great Midwestern universities are land-grant colleges. They are based on federal money. And it continues to be an important part of the, the funding package. The student debt problem is simply the transfer of what used to be government money going into education to individuals paying for that education. So it's a, it's a serious problem, and it's going to get worse if this group has another four years. 
Tom, the, the teacher in me says, yes, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree that, you know, the education is so important and that we should be doing more to fund education. But I think one of the cool things, I guess, about this new world is that, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways to learn. And I think you're an example of someone who's learned by being and doing and exploring. And, you know, and I'm kind of mildly obsessed by your photography. <laughs> I mean, oh. there's so much that I know. I know that education and photography are far away from your book, but how do these things impact your attention to detail in your writing? Like, how does that, how do you build a scene like you would take a photograph or do a piece of art or, or build, you know, a story in the classroom? Like, how do those all relate? That's a very interesting question. I, you know, when I was writing my academic books and even the, the cultural histories, like the book about tears, the book about crying and the book about uh, slackers doing nothing, those books, I had some narrative that is I built some scenes in it, but they were largely analytic books. I told some life stories in each, in each of those. So I got into a, in a narrative frame often, but they were fundamentally analytic books, argumentative books. They were they were uh, looking at history in a number of different ways, and narrative was just part of what they were up to. So it's only with the travel writing and the novel that I've moved into full-blown narrative modes, and therefore thinking about what I'm doing as writing scenes. Along the way, I did write some screenplays, and I wrote uh, some TV pilots and worked on documentary films. So I, I, I started to think uh, more visually. And while I was doing that, I took on a, I wrote for a friend of mine, I wrote her catalog for an art show. And for that, I sat down and looked at each of her paintings. And her paintings are kind of, uh, this series that she was doing was a kind of a memoir. They were based on her own family photographs. So there were pictures of her at a lot of different ages and pictures of her mother and her father and her sister. You know, it's kind of her, her life. So I sat down to write about each of the pictures, and I spent a lot of time just staring at the picture on an easel in front of me in her studio and typing what I was looking at. And that was a great little bit of training in thinking about how to describe a scene. And of course, the scenes were both an actual visual image, so I could talk about the construction of the image and the, the composition of the image and the and the colors and the paint strokes and all of that kind of stuff. But they were also narrative bits themselves, so I could talk about the the narrative part of that that image. And that that was great training. Screenplay writing itself is great training in scene writing. You really have to think about the beginning and middle and end of each discrete moment in the film, because. You're going to have cameras set up and microphones set up and you have a set of shots you can do for that scene. And then that's it. You move on to the next one. It's not like a novel where you can go back and, and add a new character into that scene later on or, or uh, just kind of uh, lengthen that, that scene because you want some more things to happen in it. The screenplay writing is very good at kind of the discipline of scene writing. In the travel writing, one of the things I realized is that if I don't take really good notes about the way people are talking, I lose that first. I will always remember what people look like. I'll always remember what the city I was in looked like and smelled like and felt like. And I'll remember what I did. So I'll remember narrative moments, but I'll forget. I won't be able to recapture 
very specific way of speaking of, of a person who has a, a unique way of talking unless I, I take notes. And the scene works so much better if I have examples of that person's speech ready to go in my notebook. So that's four or five different answers to that, that question rather than a general one, but hopefully that helps. Do you have some common themes that come up year after year um, when you're teaching your students? Well, yes. I think that, you know, especially early in people's writing lives, kind of figuring out the difference between narrative and narrative summary takes people a long time. That is kind of when you're in that kind of these kind of uh, complex past tenses, he w- had been to the theater and, you know, that, that, that those, those kinds of moments where we are getting background Readers are not fully engaged when they're getting that narrative summary background. They are, they're partially engaged. They're waiting for that turn when the writer says, and so given all that, now Joey walked into the bar and started shooting, right? Whatever, whatever it is, the actual narrative moment is where the reader gets fully engaged. And so kind of keeping, helping, helping young writers figure out where they're they're leaving their reader half engaged and where they've got them fully engaged in the narrative that's that's a, that recurs all of the time i mean the main thing i guess i and and this is my kind of old fuddy duddy been in the business so long get off my lawn kind of comment but it's uh <laughs> people don't read enough people do not read enough and they don't read enough contemporary literature they don't read enough literature from other countries. They don't need to read enough literature from outside their own bubbles. They don't read en- enough of the classics. They, uh, reading All great writers are great readers. And uh, I mean, in Shakespeare's case, of course, he was a great playgoer as well as a great reader. But you, you have to be kind of as, as widely experienced in your genre or genres as possible in order to do it well. What are some, did, did you already talk about some of the things that you read to help you write this novel? Oh, well, you know, the, the, I think one of the fun things about the novel is that it's got its syllabus embedded in it because Frank is a big reader. He's an autodidact. He's never been to college, but he is a big reader. He's very proud of his reading, very proud of his, what, what he's uh, accomplished as an autodidact. And he's always telling Dimitri, things about his reading and, and talking about the reading to, to Dimitri. So you get bits from Faulkner, from Chandler, from Hammett, from Patricia Highsmith, from Nietzsche, from Graham Greene, from the noir film, as well as novels. Hawthorne is in there. Hemingway is in there. Cather's in there. Wharton. Mm-hmm. All of the kind of um, influences. And, the, and in fact, I'm kind of used little bits of of those other writers, I use little, little kind of narrative moments. There's a moment in the big sleep, Raymond Chandler's big sleep, where a younger sister kind of falls into the detective's arms. And I have uh, a younger sister fall into Frank's arms at one point, just a little, mm-hmm. a little reference. So the, 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 I think the influence is for people who know these books, I think there's a little bit of fun to be had in the referentiality of it. I kind of love that your character is a well-read sociopath. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. <laughs> so funny. So, Tom, tell us what your superpower is. What's your superpower? My superpower is kind of 
ridiculous optimism. Mm. I just think, sure, I can do that. I mean, the novel, my hesitancy with the novel notwithstanding, I've done a lot of different things and I've done them because I thought, oh yeah, sure, I could do that. I could, I can play the piano. I don't need to take lessons. I'll just start playing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so th this, that's a ridiculous form of optimism. And it didn't work out when I tried to be a drummer. I was a terrible drummer and I was a pretty, <laughs> pretty mediocre guitar player. But uh, with the piano, it worked. So I have a lot, of, a lot of optimism. I thought, sure, I can start a book review. I can start a radio show. I can start a publishing workshop. You know, and all of those things are, if I had known how much work each one was, if I hadn't been overly optimistic about how easy it would be to get it done, I might not have done it, but the kind of ridiculous optimism has gotten me far. So can you give advice or perhaps optimistic thoughts to a writer just starting out? You know, a lot of people seem to work on it for a really long time, and sometimes it feels like they're working forever and not feeling the success. What kind of advice would you give to those people? Well, I guess it would be in three parts, although they're all related. One is if you're trying to write a story or a poem or a book, it's just your first book or your first poem or your first story. It's not, it doesn't have to be the thing that's going to make you a beloved writer through the ages. It doesn't have to be the thing that's going to be a bestseller. It doesn't have to be the best thing you'll ever write. It's just the thing that you're doing. And take the weight off it and let it be one of the things that you've written in your life not the thing that's going to prove to everyone that you are right to want to be a writer. Take the pressure off it. Now that's, that's one. Second is the perfect is the enemy of the good. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be perfect. This is, this is why I say that they're, they're very related pieces of advice. You don't have to make every sentence perfect. You don't have to make everything. Walter Mosley, I just interviewed Walter Mosley the other night. And, and he has a great description of when, oh, he has a great book about writing, by the way, called Elements of Fiction, which are a bunch of rules and, and suggestions and, and advice about writing, which is, I, I highly recommend. And he has a thing about, somebody asked him, how do you know when you're finished with a book? And he said, well, what you do is you write your draft and then you read through it and you see all of this stuff that's wrong in it. And so you fix that. And then you read it again and you see a bunch of new stuff that you didn't see the first time that you realize is, is mistakes and things that are wrong and things that need to be fixed. And so you fix those. And then you, those, because you've fixed all those things, that's kind of created some new problems for the book. So you, you go through and you fix all of those things. And then you read it and you do that however many times you can. Sometimes it's five, sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 40. And then at one point you read the book and you see these things that are wrong with it and you have no idea how to fix them. And that's when the book is done, <laughs> which I think is when, very, when you don't know how to fix it. Well, that's when the book is done. Yeah, exactly. You've fixed all the things you can know how to fix. You've fixed, you fixed all the things that you can, you can identify solutions for. And once you just have no idea, you think, well, this is, this is something's wrong here, but I don't know what to do about it. Then, then you're done. It's time to kind of send that book off uh, to wow. your agent or editor or publisher and, and start on the next one. Julie, has that been your experience? Well, I was laughing because I was thinking of who are running with scissors. It's the tip of my Ag tongue. Augustine Burroughs? Yes, Augustine Burroughs. I saw Augustine Burroughs speak 
And he showed us his published book and it was full of like marker and cross outs and, and things he wanted on the side. And he basically said, it will never be done. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, so it's the thing, like, I think there's a point where you're just exhausted yourself and it's, it's, it's the best it is in that moment. Will a writer ever be happy with every single word or sentence in a book? Probably not, but, but there, but you're right. There is a point where you need to just let it go and have its own life. Absolutely. And especially if you put a lot of energy into a piece of work, I feel like the energy, you know, does things like, like I think when, and once it's kind of out there in the world, like in my experience watching, you know, my friends and different projects, you know, once it's kind of out there and it's out of the writer's control, that's when it starts to um, live. And that's interesting. Yeah. So it kind of is like birth in a way. And I mean, I, but I, I think Tom, what made me really happy as it, once again, I feel like we're talking teacher to teacher. We don't usually have teachers on here. I'm like, Tom, mm. I'm we should get some LA. more. We're going to have coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But, but um, you know, the whole idea of one of the things that I think that you gave me as a reminder that each project isn't a make or break, that it is just where you are at a moment. It's just a single project within a body of work. And if we, maybe we just gave ourselves a break as writers once in a while. And I feel like that's, that's, I think, a theme of what I had through your interview here is, you know, talking about pairing it with travel and an adventure and turning the writing into the meditation and into, you know, that pleasure part of your brain, which I think a lot of writers don't do that. You know, like we hear as Americans, like work, 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 yeah. work. And, and like, I feel like you have a nice pivot on that and a really lovely way of looking at just being a book person, you know, like living within the world wholly is really important and it's lovely. Oh yeah, it's a it's a great privilege to be able to do this. You know, if if you don't have to work three jobs to to support your family and you and you actually have time to write, that's uh, that's one of the great uh, joys of of living. And so, I mean, not just writing, but creating anything. And you know, the the problems of always of never feeling like it's good enough, never feeling like it's finished. Those that. that hits all artists. There are these painters who sneak into museums, right, and touch up their canvases. Um, well, 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 the guard's not looking, you know, it, it happens to all of us. So it's an impulse that we recognize, but it shouldn't stop someone from, from publishing because once you publish, it does free you up. It frees you from that project and you, you get to kind of direct your energy and attention to something else. And if, if we're, uh, people that are interested in the, in the world around us, there's always new things to grab our attention and grab our, grab our desire to engage. and. Uh, that's uh, part of the fun is, is the new project. You know, the terror of the blank page is balanced by the beauty of the new project. Mm-hmm. Where can people find you online? I'm at TomLutzWriter.com. Los Angeles Review of Books is LAReviewOfBooks.org. Of course, I'm on the UC Riverside website as well. And uh, I have a Instagram and a, and a Twitter that are um, easy to find and also on the websites. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Uh, thank you. It was really, really fun. I, I, you do a, a good tag team. <laughs> we are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.